0: Welcome, everybody. This is Natalie. This is Elizabeth. And we're your hosts of Wisterhood, a podcast by Women in Science Portland. We created Wisterhood to be our community of support for women in science and their allies. And today we have a special guest, the one and only Tiffany Wendell Hansen. (laughs) Tiffany, who uses the pronouns she, her, currently holds a number of roles. She works as an NGSS consultant and professional development specialist for the Portland Metro STEM Partnership, STEM Beyond Schools, and a number of other statewide STEM hubs. She's the editor of the Oregon Science Teaching Association publication, TOST, and more recently added the role of education coordinator at Oregon
1: Mesa. In each of these roles, Tiffany is centering issues of equity in STEM with a focus on access, opportunity, engagement, and learning supports for all students. In these roles, she reviews curriculum, facilitates and plans professional development, and evaluates and revises structures and assessments for learning. While Tiffany's passion is equity in STEM education, she has a broad background. She studied economics and political science in her undergrad and started out her professional career in corporate management and political campaign management. These are well. These are wells of knowledge that she often pulls on her work in education.
0: Yeah, it's so cool that you sort of like get to have your your hands in like a lot of different things. And it kind of seems like a lot. And hopefully, like, it's not like, too overwhelming question mark. We know how overworked women in STEM can get. Yeah. Um, but that's so
2: cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because I'd say um, I do it to myself. Previously, I had taught for the last decade. And so um, that was a very predictable job in some ways where people, it's unpredictable what's going to happen in your classroom. But you know, every day you're going to be in front of kids and working with them to, you know, learn and have a great school experience. And then after school, you might get some stuff done. So what what is most interesting is going back in, because I took some time out of the workforce, not too much time, but um, leaving the classroom and then going back into a more traditional job has been a little boring. (laughs) That's not really the right word, um, but a little bit less engaging at times. And so one reason I keep so many things on my plate is because if I'm going from different projects to different projects, it it helps keep me engaged in my own work. And excited about things. So that even if, even if I had a boring day on one project, maybe the next day um, I get a break from it and then I come back to it and I'm excited to do it again. So I do like that variety. Um, But it does mean a lot of late nights and it does mean a lot of weekends, which isn't necessarily ideal when you have um, a four-year-old child at home. But uh, it's pretty important work. And he he enjoys some of the stuff I do too. And he gets to be involved sometimes. So that's good.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's probably like the best beta testers your own kids to see like have them have fun and then you promote it to other students um so yeah so you've had quite the background um and what specifically led you kind of to stem because from from your uh schooling it doesn't really seem like you studied science um but this is where you are now so what led you here
2: yeah that's actually really funny um my passion was science really early on um, in all the way from elementary through middle school, high school. Um, I took all the advanced courses in science in high school. And even when, when I went to college, initially I had declared a major in chemistry and I did, you know, the gen chem series and was getting ready to go into ochem. And um, I had an experience with a particular professor. And unfortunately that. Um, It made me doubt myself. And so I switched, and I loved math and I liked thinking about how people behave. And so that's why um, I went into economics and political science because I I felt like that was an interesting intersection of analyzing things, but with numbers about human behaviors. Um, So, yeah, then after going into the corporate world and political campaign management, I was uh, to say lightly disheartened by the cultures and um, in those organizations and and just generally the work you could actually do to make change right I felt like a lot of it was talking rather than doing and so. um, It made me think about teaching and then I was originally going to be a teacher, Um, I thought I would do secondary and focus in science or chemistry, one of the um, one of the high school focuses, but um, I. I also have a background having ran um, summer programs for the Boys and Girls Club all through college, and I remember very, very distinctly um, how many children did not have really strong elementary teachers when it came to math and science. And so, because I had such a passion for that, and I felt fortunate to have had experiences that were positive in elementary school, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go teach elementary and upper elementary, um, and really focus on on you know, the, that science and math and then social studies in particular. Not to say I don't like reading or writing. Um, I just feel like that's used everywhere. So we need to just make sure we're giving kids equal opportunities to engage in all the content areas. So yeah, it's a weird journey. I'm that kind of person who um, I start one place and end up in a place much different than I thought it would be, but it all makes sense when it has a narrative with it
0: to start sort of towards the beginning of what you were saying that's such an interesting pivot to go from chemistry to econ because I feel like all, all the people that I know who are in chemistry or even the people I know who were in gen chem and hated it which I mean like let's be honest didn't we all
2: I no, mean maybe I love gen
0: chem <laughs> <laughs> not the chemistry majors we that do not like my have favorite. chemistry not in this house I don't know like wise move to go from like I think to go from chemistry and to recognize that like there's so many things like skills and interests that might originate in STEM but like bleed elsewhere um
2: yeah I do think it's I there was zero intention in me shifting by being I thank you for suggesting wise but I, I don't think that was it I think it was um intimidation right so um even looking back, I don't regret any of my, the switches I made, but um, I think had structures been different, had, an, uh, had professors had different attitudes or better communication skills with women in particular, I might not have come off that path and everything would look a lot different. But um, I do think as I've gone down this path, what I've realized it always comes back to STEM, right? Like, whether it's Econ, political science. Guess what? Comes back to science and engineering and technology and all the like. It always comes back. So, um, I certainly was not aware of that
0: when I was younger. But I now, I'm now definitely more aware of it. I, I guess what like was sort of interesting about what you said about like the professors in the different fields is like, yes, definitely, STEM professors do not know how to treat women <laughs> kindly. Is it a given? Yes. But also, like, interestingly, I think sometimes, like, in my mind, at least, like, econ professors might not be better. Did, and sometimes, like, I tell people you need a safe space major if you're a STEM major. Like, you need to have a major that it's, like, like, women and gender studies or, like, Africana studies. Like, do something that can be your safe space major. Did you feel that econ was safer or was it just, um. like, the most logical switch?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So I did, I was a double major in econ and political science. So I did both. I felt like for me, um, so long story short, I shifted out of chemistry because I legitimately had a professor who, I had a lab partner, we all know how lab partners go and everything was the same. There was, our lab books were the exact same. And in fact, my lab partner often missed lab. So they would copy my stuff And we had different grades on our lab notebook. So I didn't assume I was like, I didn't assume um, the professor was wrong. Instead I went in and wanted to know like, gosh, I must've missed something. What did I miss that my partner got? And um, my partner was male and white and uh, he did not go with me to the meeting. Um, it, It was just, I wanted to know how to improve. And the professor was like, you know, honey, literally called me, honey, I will always remember it. And he said, you should just be happy. You gotta be, that's real good for a woman in chemistry. And I was just like, what? Like, and and that was enough for me to feel like, I don't know if I do my best, if I'm ever going to be recognized. And so as someone who always wanted to do my best and not that I need to be recognized, but to feel that I could ever achieve anything, um, it was enough to turn me off. So going to econ, well, it was definitely male-dominated as well. I was treated more like a unicorn, if that makes sense. So it was kind of like I was president of the Econ Association, and the professors, while they were, again, largely male, um, I don't know if they looked at me kind of like their daughter. And so they had this like, I don't know, it was different. It wasn't like they had a gatekeeper mentality that we don't want you here it was more like oh we're so excited you're here we need someone like you here so and it might have been the school I went to Western Washington University um, but it, it was it was definitely more welcoming um and political science was a very safe space only because um, my family my my not my parents but my brothers were both in college as well and um one was focusing on criminal justice and the other was focusing on international relations so I felt like political science was safe spot that I could lean on them if I needed um, help because neither of our parents were college educated so I often felt lost in the woods and I could go to them
1: that's kind of funny the whole unicorn thing that's that's rare for for a woman to be told that in the stem fields um I don't know it it, it's like a good thing and a bad thing like I'm I'm really happy that they took you in but at the same (laughs) time it's like hmm Hmm, you know, kind of sketchy, shady in the background well, what's going on.
2: Um, I oh hands down I will tell you, I mean it was it was early 2000s, me too had not happened. And so there was definitely an element of um you know, like an expectation that I would wear, you know, my professional wear was definitely a skirt with high heels and nylons, right? And um there were definitely comments made about how you looked right? Or like, and it wasn't nice comments necessarily. I mean, they were trying to be complimentary, but they weren't always like, oh, your hair, new color, right? Or it was, it was never neutral. It was always like, wow, you look nice in that dress. And it's like, oh, so those (laughs) things happened. Um, But there was definitely, when I would say something to contribute, there was surprise that I could hold my own if that makes sense. And because there was that surprise, there was a little bit of intrigue. Um, And that just didn't, obviously, in chemistry, I I loved it. I had no problem with it, except for that professor. Um, But it just was a bad enough experience. And I had to take him again. So that's kind of when I switched, when I saw that my only option was to take that professor again, and I was like, nope, not gonna do it. Um, But no, you're right. There is ickiness involved in all of that. But, um, back then it was just kind of, I didn't even think about it. I felt lucky to be there. I felt lucky to feel like I was allowed to have a seat at the table and that when I spoke, people would listen. Um, I don't know that everyone took me seriously all the time. Right. But a fair number did.
1: I want to go back a little bit back to your chemistry. Um, yeah roots, I guess. So, uh, you said that you were interested in, um, science throughout most of your education. Um, what exactly made you interested in it? Like for me, I got into science because I really like the environment and animals, but what was it for you? What led you towards chemistry or just science in general?
2: Yeah, you know, that's so, I was thinking about that question earlier too. Um, come, it's weird, again, my parents were not college educated, but they are very um, skill-based people. My father was a mechanic, and my mom, while she um, was a stay-at-home mom with a part-time career most of the time, um, she was really good at cooking. And so, and cooking was a science, right? Like we didn't just talk about um, it we didn't ever have like it was always a homemade meal. It was always this big ordeal. Um, which seemed like a lot then, but it's because it was it was like her studio. Right. In some ways. Um, So I think seeing both of them engage in the world in a really authentic way. but having to have technical skill made me wonder, you know, like, why does the food taste better when it's this way? And with my dad, it was always taking things apart. (laughs) So taking it apart and wondering how it worked. I remember learning about combustion in high school. And then having a lot more respect for my dad, being able to like build an engine and make it work. Um, And so I think combustion was my initial interest into um, chemistry and physics really. So yeah. And then I also was fortunate to have a close friend through childhood whose dad was a, um, gosh, was he a, he was a biologist, but he was specifically studied, I forget what the field was, but and he was an inventor as well. So he was making odd sensors and tools to determine. um, He was like an engineer with a science background. So he made different sensors to evaluate when fruit was going bad in a warehouse. Um, And strangely enough, that didn't used to exist. And him and some of his team worked on those kind of projects. So I think just being surrounded by a number of adults who had jobs solving problems. Um, And all of them needed more information, right? Like it wasn't as simple as it might look at first glance. So yeah, I just always kept asking questions past what
0: I saw in front of me. And it always led back to science or STEM. Like we've talked a lot about how like there's so much like uh, markers for sort of STEM minds that come from like very what you, like not a traditional subject it's not like sitting in a classroom and being like what is y equal like that's not um you know necessarily where all those stem skills come from and i think like um as like young children like it's such like it's such a an astute observation to make about like sort of the way like the 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 problem solving skills that um, sort of link STEM training um, to things like cooking and making engines and stuff like that.
2: Um, well, so it's it's really interesting because um, one of my, this is so silly because it's a group of standards, but the next generation science standards, the NGSS, um, I think in education in particular, once I learned more about those, I really, I mean, I always loved STEM, but I really got on board with, how we teach it. And most importantly, it's because those everyday experiences we have, whether it's our car not starting, whether it's cooking our dinner, whether it's, um, you know, our garbage going away and wondering where does our garbage go, right? All of these come back to the phenomena or the occurrences that create our world. And to understand them, you need to be able to be literate in science and STEM. So I feel like, when I think of my own background, that might be one reason I'm so passionate about trying to give kids authentic experience in STEM, um, because a lot of times when we are just sitting in a classroom and we're teaching formulas or we're teaching how to balance an equation, or we're you know reading a book about something that's a million miles away from us, um, hundreds of thousands of miles away, you know. I don't think that that is necessarily gonna resonate with all students. In fact, we know research tells us it doesn't, especially um, you know less represented students in STEM. So I feel like that's the shift that I work through in my career now to try and bring, um, which is authentic STEM experiences. And I'd like to see it in the classroom and I'd like to see it out of the classroom because uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson says it, like kids are scientists, they do it automatically. We did it when we were children, we still do it. But um, the formal structures we have for education right now, it's, oh, it stifles it. In fact, we probably have many solutions that would have been found if we didn't have a formalized education system that squashed creativity and innovation. Um, and that, it's not to say that all teachers do that because that's certainly not the case. And it's not to say that all schools do that, but systemically, there really is an issue with um, restricting access to STEM based on nothing except for where you come from, your um, you know your family's background, uh, even behaviors. Which is interesting because you know behaviors are largely cultural, right? So things that some groups will see as a problem behavior, it's not. It's just a different behavior that's often quite common in another culture. And if you have a teacher who's not you know, aware of that, then they suddenly start barring participation or they wanna deal with the behavior rather than recognizing that it's a totally normal thing and they need to work with that student where that student is at. So yeah, um, it's a really interesting noticing you took Natalie because that's really at the core of why I try to do what I do, <laughs> but I don't know how successful I always am.
1: I mean, I've worked with you. I would say you're pretty successful. Yeah. Uh, we've had many a conversation about these systematic uh, systems that are in place. Um, and yeah, I mean, you and I bo- have both had conversations about how we try and bring everyday life uh, things we do to make it science, like even talking about cooking. And like it, it made me think about food chemistry because I was eating. Okay, don't judge me. I was eating cake earlier um, with ice cream. We it, love no judgment. Okay. <laughs> <We> stand. Because <laughs> uh, the reason I say that is I feel like I talk so much about food on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm just like food this, for that. Anyway. Uh, so That's I was having fun. Ch- That's why. Exactly. So I, start- I was eating food and uh, I was eating cake with ice cream. And it just like before I had never had ice cream with my cake, right? totally different like explosion in your mouth now it's like I don't know that I ever want to go back to eating chocolate cake without ice cream but it also made me think of all the different flavors of ice creams we have and like all the different brands and all this stuff it's like there is someone who sits in a lab and tastes all these things and is like yeah this is a good choice this is like you know and and it might not seem sciency, and it might not seem like I don't know that it's part of the STEM process, but it really is. It's like all these careers that people don't know about that have that science element. And now I'm going to go on a tangent.
2: (laughs) No, I think, but what you're talking about is super interesting because I feel like, again, I, I always take it back to early childhood education where we lose a lot of kids. And I think about their natural wondering, which is often like, why does that smell, right? There's good smells and there's bad smells. And I remember even being a kid myself wondering like, it was, it was chemistry in high school. And I won't give all the details, except someone was like, what is that smell in the classroom? Right. And we were learning about esters. And so, you know, our, our chem professor or chem teacher had said, well, all smells are really just small molecules or small particles. And so we're like, wait a minute. So we're literally physically getting this in our body right now. Right. And they're like, yeah. And so, as we started thinking through those things, then you get more, more and more curious. You're like, wow, how do they make those body smells? And how do like the our, and how do we make fragrances? And how do we um, make our food smell so much better when it's cooked? Right. Um, just all those different things that the random eating cake with ice cream versus smelling something not great, <laughs> um, wondering why does this happen? And knowing that you can find the answers and sometimes those answers help solve problems later. Uh, I think that's just, that's the magic, right? Cause, um, today I was talking to someone and they were like, I believe in magic because magic is simply science, right? So it's, yeah, I could, if science is magic, I certainly believe so.
0: Yeah. Another thing that I found super interesting about what Elizabeth was saying was that like when we learn about things like melting point and boiling point like we a lot of times like I was thinking about like my own sort of frame of reference is that like you envision like we don't see melting very much sort of in real in like daily life outside the context of ice and ice cream and I I remember like sort of uh like sort of these daily things um, sort of being brought up when I was like first learning um, all these like different like chemist chemical and physical concepts Um, and I thought I think that like it's interesting that that's sort of the lexicon upon which like so much can get drawn from in science education because like so much of our everyday experience truly is science and so I think that's like sometimes what effective science teaching can do is like make those connections, which I think is like definitely what you've been saying. Um, And just I think think what's interesting is if you were to talk
2: to everyone who considers themselves, um, well, and let's, I want to phrase that again, everyone is a STEM person. We fail to demonstrate that by talking about these things, right? So everyone engages in science and math and engineering and technology every day, whether they think they do or not. And they're all pretty proficient at it. So I think if we were to talk to anyone who considers themselves like um, really competent, or we were, they're on this podcast feeling like I'm comfortable in this in this identity I identify as a STEM person. I bet they could all come back to a childhood experience that it's like oh ice cream, or um, I'm different projects. That, whether it was like we had butterflies, or we raised chickens, or those little things. And I think that for people who I, I would. I don't know. This would be a good study to do, but I wonder if people who maybe do not identify as solidly as a STEM person, if they might not have those memories because it gets at the difference of strong instruction versus, you know, maybe less less um, strength and instruction when kids can grasp onto something in their own world, in their own schema, and and really connect with that. Um, And I do think, again, most teachers do this in some way, but sometimes they don't necessarily feel as comfortable in STEM either. So they kind of hesitate. And um, it'd be nice for more educators in general to just have more comfort with realizing
0: they are competent in these everyday things. One thing I wanted to circle back to, um, while we're sort of on the topic of like science education, sort of... um, pedagogy, I guess, is mm-hmm. a um, mm-hmm. You work as sort of the NGSS consultant um, for the Portland, Sem, Portland, Portland STEM, STEM, STEM Portland Metro Yeah, they're all long,
2: long acronyms for all of them.
0: I went to the NGSS system while I was in, well, I was in K-12 and I felt like it was always very contentious, like everyone all had an opinion about it. And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, what are some things that like the curriculum does well? And what are some things that you wish it did better? Oh, that's well, I mean, so curriculum
2: is, you know, the designed units by different organizations that are supposed to embrace or adhere to the NGSS, right? So um, is your question related to the NGSS or to the curriculum written utilizing the NGSS? Both. I'm I'm 100% into the NGSS first of all, and that's I think what people who aren't 100% on it don't necessarily um, maybe even know about it is that it was written by teachers, by industry, and by um, by people who are scientists, right? So it, and then they also looked at other aspects of learning with with our ELA learning. And our math learning and they tried to integrate it in a way that it couldn't be done on a standardized test right it had to be performative and so i think the performative nature of the ngss is what i like however people who are not as comfortable with science they want to go they want to often find something quick and easier to assess and so they they actually very they they skew away from the ngss and they kind of go back into this fact-based like let's rote memorization or let's have this um, lab that you kind of have the procedure written for you. Um, You're gonna follow it and then write a hypothesis that we knew what it was going to say from the get-go. And I think that that simply happens because of time, right? Um, It also happens because again, some people don't have the time to understand the NGSS. So the other strength of the NGSS is it's rooted in phenomena-based teaching, even though it doesn't call out phenomena, in the standards themselves, if you choose a phenomena um, or an everyday place-based occurrence for a kid to focus on, you naturally see ways that the NGSS can come in together and you can teach more than one at a time. So again, this is hard. It's people need training on it, right? It's not something that's as easy as here's the seven things you need to know and go to a book and read it or here's some activities that do it. It's... Um, in many ways like a symphony or an orchestra of learning that happens and in the end you look and you're like wow that was amazing i think i understand
0: it now but when you go in on one activity you might not really know how you're getting there it feels reminiscent of how like sometimes like when people just have opinions about things that they know nothing about it ends <laughs> up being like such a sad story for the entire community well and i think i think there's also standards
2: um, I don't like the name. And in fact, uh, the writers the, and the next generation science standards, they joke that they're like, these aren't standards. They're actually called performance expectations. They're all referred to as PEs. Um, and it, again, I think the narrative around standards and standardized testing and just that alone makes me not like it. You know, like I don't like that part of it. Um, and in fact, even when it comes as I get more experienced, I feel like no one should be teaching to one thing, right? Like even the performance expectations, they're great. The NGSS is great. But if you have a group of students who, you know, are really interested in something that might not perfectly fit what you're trying to go to, go towards the student, right? Go towards them and where they want to go with it. And I I truly believe if we can create love and interest and learning for students, that they can achieve anything. They really can. It's when we when they want to go in a direction or they are suddenly interested and we're like, no, 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 we have to get onto this chapter or no, 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 we have our test coming up. So we need to stick onto this. That's how we break them, right? So um, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever go back into a classroom and I don't know if uh, if someone hears this, they're gonna be like, oh no, we don't want her. She's not about like the test or this or that. Um, Again, I I recognize we have to do them, but I just don't think it's the end all. I don't think it's the thing we should be using to, to choose our daily activities with our students, unless you're doing a reteach or something like that. So now I'm like in the weeds, but when it comes to curriculum though, as you were asking, I think I've done a lot of curriculum review um, and I've been on a lot of committees to look at a number of different organizations. I was on um, the state curriculum review with ODE. I did curriculum review with Hillsborough and a couple other districts. And um, what I can say is no one is perfect right? No organization that says we do it actually does it completely and neither does a teacher, right? Like I think recognizing that everything is imperfect and knowing we're going to have to adjust it for our students is is the best way to approach any curriculum. There needs to be a balance too because a new teacher or someone new to um, a content area is going to want curriculum to start from and so it needs to be user-friendly enough Um, but not overwhelming, and then it also needs to be flexible, so there's this catch-22.
0: The traditional sort of science experience was like, yeah, okay, like, we'll put you through the meat grinder, I guess, Um, but I, like, wonder, like, if I had, like, a more non-traditional experience, what my experience now in college would be, because, like, college is still very much, at least where I am, it's, like, we are going to test awesome. you until you drop out or until y- you finish the class. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Is that is like the thought of like how higher education like informs like mm-hmm. top down sort of education filter into that process? Or like, is that? Um, no, I think that's uh, you're
2: that you are pointing out the problem in STEM education is we're always looking at the end. And <laughs> I was going to I was in a conversation with someone today saying, a lot of these nonprofit organizations, one of the biggest challenges they face is they want to meet students where students are, but they have industry coming to them saying, we want this. And it's like, but they don't understand how kids work. They don't understand how to keep them interested, right? They don't understand um, how to work with kids, (laughs) right? So um, I think the same thing happens in higher ed where okay, we know where they're going. They're going into this industry. Okay, these are the skills. This is what they need to be able to do right before they join us. Now let's move backwards into high school. Well, to do well there, then we need to do this. Oh, well, to do well in high school, then we should do this in middle school. But what ends up happening if we're feeding into this structure that we know is in its essence unequal, then we have to weed out, right? Because if we keep it the way that it is, kids who, who don't have that traditional experience for a variety of reasons, I even think, my privilege is very apparent when my parents might not have been college educated but my father was skilled he was a mechanic and my mother was home with me and could work with me on my work and and then i think my one of my closest friends dad was a doctor right um and and an inventor so i was lucky to have that and so that traditional path it didn't feel so foreign but if i hadn't had that i would have hands down not had um the the resilience to continue down that literal literally every day like you said you're being graded like you didn't do that well you didn't do that well you didn't do that well and then the occasional gold star it's it you know i wouldn't have been able to do it i know i wouldn't have if i didn't have adults in my life um to show me that it was possible hands down there are some old-fashioned teachers that are strong educators right like they're good and kids love them and maybe it's not like the newest, freshest stuff, but they have a relationship that they build. And so it works, right? There's That's the other thing about education that we need to be very aware of, which is you don't have to be reinventing everything as long as you focus on your relationships. But we should do it all, but teachers can't, right? So it all, if you can build those relationships and you can go in any direction and make it happen if you know your students,
1: Why don't we talk about your experience in STEM equity and your allyship in that?
2: The word allyship, it's interesting to me because I feel like if you ever say I'm an ally, then you're not. And so I think that's what it really comes down to is having relationships and building the trust, right? Within communities like yourself, different than yourself, um, and living through your work, um, and, and it will speak for you, right? Like that's really all you can do and then learn from missteps, um, listen. Um, but I think when it comes to change, it, it comes back to what we were just saying with Natalie where we have to change the weed out culture and we have to recognize that STEM looks more familiar than people think it does and then not be teaching to the top. And I don't mean the top like student, I mean, college, right? Um, Even even some organizations, I think it was, was it Pixar or Microsoft or someone was saying, you know, unfortunately, a lot of American universities, the higher end ones, aren't turning out creative people. They're turning out people who know how to give out like the right answer, but they don't know how to come up with new things. Um, I feel like we see that on Disney Plus, you know what I mean? Reboots and different stories and things like that. Um, sorry for the Disney
1: Well, okay. Yes, Disney Plus, but right now I'm stuck on the new movie, Encanto. So, um, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to not not bash them on that one.
2: (laughs) I was going to say, not to bash. I, A, love Disney. Um, and I don't, I like the reboots and I like comic books and I like all those things. So I like it. Don't, don't get me wrong, but it does make me wonder sometimes, um, just the creativity question of it, right? I think our weed out culture stifles that just like Neil DeGrasse Tyson has pointed out, just like all these experts. Um, And so when our stellar universities are saying that the way you are the smartest is if you get an A on this test or that you're going to be successful, if you get an A on this test, it's just not the truth, right? Um, And we know that, we know that from multiple examples in reality. Um, And I think that that message should be clear. It doesn't mean they shouldn't test us, right? It just needs to be like getting an A isn't what's actually going to make you successful. Yeah. Um, but it, it's hard to not fall to that when you have <laughs> when you're paying tuition and when your parents are looking at your grades or anything like that. So
1: these are s- oppressive systems. They're not designed to weed out a white male or things like that. Um, and that's that's the deep, deeper underlining that there is, but well, yeah
2: when we look at the tests and the kids who aren't making it through don't look like ourselves, and I'm saying, let's pretend I'm a white male professor or a white female professor for that matter, you start excusing it. You start saying, well, maybe this, or maybe this, maybe this kid had a hard time with that. No, no, no. Like you guys are grading everyone in this way that it's eliminating the success for people who don't look like you. Um, and maybe there's a problem with the way we're evaluating. Or the, um, the tools we're using for evaluation. And there actually is a lot of research coming out about in particular multiple choice tests and how students perform based on their subgroup categorization. So if they're told ahead of time that, you know, on the SAT or ACT students like you don't necessarily do as well. They don't when they're told that ahead of time. Or if they say students like you do pretty well, they go in and they do better. Not by a huge amount, but enough that it makes a statistical difference. So when you think about getting that your entire life, of course, there's that little bit of lift someone gets and that little bit of um, degradation that another one gets, right? So it's, um, like you said, we have to look at who's being weeded out and then ask ourselves what is wrong with the system that we're weeding those people
1: out. It's the, the microaggressions that add up. Like, oh, it's okay. I mean, you're good for being who you are, right? Like those right, kind of comments. Right. Yeah. You should
2: feel lucky. Exactly. Everyone does so well. Like, well, yeah. actually all of you did great. <laughs> like, I don't know why you're saying I should feel lucky because you're doing fine. There, I'm sure you all have heard this too, there's a lot of information about STEM identity and how in particular with young women or um, identifying women, how they establish their identity usually right around fifth, sixth grade. And if they don't have it, they typically don't develop it later. They already feel like cut out from it. So when you know that Title I schools don't have as much science time because they have a larger reading block, Well, no wonder we have a lot of, when you think of our Title I schools and the demographics that make that up, well, it's no wonder that we don't have as many of those students going on to do STEM stuff when their first experience is middle school and then they're just getting hammered with tests that they know nothing about because they've had no previous experiences. I actually, if I had to hedge any kind of bet, it would be if we want to break this pipeline and make it work better, we need to start with early childhood experience and elementary and STEM.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Early education and then uh, adult STEM literacy for parents who don't have a STEM background or do, don't think they have a STEM background. Like, right. for example, a lot of people in my community are mechanics, but they don't see that as a STEM or an engineering or anything like that. They're just like, that's what I do. That's a skill. That's it. There's nothing else to it. But when you explain it to them and you break it down for them, you're like, hey, you are part of the STEM field. Teach this to your kids. They're like, oh, my God, I'm empowered. I am part of this, I did this, I can show this to my child. Right. And, and I think we're also missing that part. We're missing the, the focus in early in child's education and the empowerment of those parents, especially parents who aren't in, at Intel, like a lot of the parents here and things like that.
2: The collaborative nature of most STEM fields, even when you think about math and when you think about people who, um, you know, are doing like theoretical physics, um, they work in teams to check each other's work and to come up with ideas and to push back on each other. We have some, some student subgroups in particular that their social um, proficiency is so much better than a lot of other students. It is often not utilized as a strength. It's not utilized as that, hey, you guys are really good at collaborating and working as a group. We're gonna let you do a group paper, right? We're gonna let you do a group test right? Like maybe like, and it might not, not multiple choice. Cause that wouldn't really work out well. And they aren't a great measure anyways, but like there, there are different ways to
0: consider doing that. Um, because
2: in real life you never work in isolation.
0: As a kid, like I was really lucky that, um, I like very early on, I just like self-identified as STEM. And then like later after the fifth grade marker that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, After that, like I just had a like a great middle school teacher who fully believed in me. I mean, his STEM instruction was great. And I mean, there was nothing wrong with it. And he he was just incredible. But like the most important thing about that experience was that he truly believed in me. That's so interesting. Cause when you right, when you're like teachers, I I mean, I
2: first of all, I had great teachers, but most of my most of my science teachers were female. And that's not common, right? Like. I mean, it is because most teachers are female in public education, but in science in particular, in high school and even middle school, you, you tend to find a lot more males. That's where they're often present. And I was just thinking, yeah, in seventh grade, I did have a male teacher that I butted heads with, but that was seventh grade. I feel like we all butted heads with people then. Um, But yeah, eighth grade, ninth grade in my um, chemistry class, in my physics class, like they were all female teachers. And now when I, when I look back to that, I'm sure there was a bit of that like looking glass self where I'm like, oh, well they can do it, I can do it, right? Not even thinking it consciously, but um, that speaks to the need for role models, right? That look like yourself, teachers that look like yourself um, or identify in some way like you identify. I do think school districts are doing their best at trying to change the, the makeup of educators Um, Right now, there's an absolute crisis because of the pandemic of having educators, period. Um, It's expensive to become an educator, almost impossible in some ways. And so the people we want to have as educators, like, it's not like they can just walk in the door and do it. So that's also a huge problem. I think if we were to um, change the way we get our teaching degrees, like if it was a internship almost where you're paid for your student teaching, or if you are you know, if you can commit to a district and I know some districts have these kind of programs, but if you can commit to them and they'll pay for your education, you have to work for a contract after that for a certain number of years, like that would work, but we have to reconsider how we're filtering our teachers into the system because that's another weed out system.
0: And I mean, it's also like on the other end, there are also teachers who like will retire maybe a bit early after like, having worked in the industry in STEM. And I think that that's like the other end of teachers that I've seen. And that really adds like a whole different sort of flavor profile. You mean
2: the industry professionals who retire and then come into teaching? Yes. Yeah, no. And you know, I, I feel like that's a super mixed bag too, though, because I, some yep. of the strongest educators I know were originally industry. And I even think of myself as I was in STEM industry, but my background was in Manage corporate management and political campaigning, right? Um, and so I feel like that's very not teaching, right? Like, you look at it and you're like, You're I don't know that you're going to be your what? Um, but I think some people can end up having really great skills and they were just maybe in the wrong place to begin with. But, um, then you get some who it's like, It should be just like it is at my work, and this is how we should teach. And you're like, No, that's not how kids learn. So, you're right, double edged sword on
0: that one. So we've been talking about like sort of how important it is to like be, you know, upholding like the values we find important in education at an early age and all of that. But I'm also wondering like after you made that switch into sort of doing this sort of all the things that you do now, was there ever like a time when you felt like you were ready to to not do it anymore? And like, I'm I, I guess I'm asking like if you felt like there were any formative moments that made you stay because I think like a lot of times there are people like I mean it's it's great that people like want to sort of engage in advocacy and do the nitty-gritty but I think like it's so easy to burn out
2: I would be lying if I said it didn't cross my mind regularly that you know maybe I I am tired right or maybe I need a break um I was I was fortunate in the aspect that, um, when I had my son, it constantly crosses my mind. Like, what can I take off my plate? So I think my advice that would be to take things off your plate when you need to, right? Like you have to start making decisions. And, um, the only way I've avoided burnout is by accepting that I can't do it all and starting to either ask for help or be like, I can't do it. People will keep taking if you'll keep giving. So um, there was a point where it's hard because I feel like women are held to a different standard when we put our foot down and say, I'm not being paid for this, right? Or, um, you know, I I told you I couldn't do this and you said I still needed to do it and I told you wouldn't be due on time and now you're wondering why it's not. Um, I feel like if it were a man, often people just say, okay, right? Like, all right, well, what date should we push it to, right? Or okay, I'll have someone else take care of it. But I feel like um, women often, it's just this, I mean, it's not always women, I guess. Um, But I know I have felt that as a woman where I watch men who are able to take things off their plate and women are just expected to add a plate and maybe grow an extra hand. There's some organizations you work with that everyone is truly an advocate. And so you're all fighting the same fight often. And then you find yourself in organizations where Everyone isn't actually on the same page. They, they think they're close and they are, but it's a lot more battle time, right? You're You're really going head to head a lot more than you would like to. And I think that's the exhausting stuff. So
1: I think you and I share the same issue where we see something and we automatically want to help and jump on it. And then we realize we have like 50 other things in the background that we haven't gotten into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think that's a big thing, just kind of figuring out, okay, do I have the capacity for this? Can I do this? Can I take it in micro steps and still help kind of thing?
2: My older brother always talks about like, you have certain times in your career where you can be in the trenches and it's hard, right? It's just regularly hard. Advocacy work is always a trench, right? You never get out of it. And so I think that um, you have to have different plans to give yourself little breaks. Even if it's even if it is a career shift um, for a a chunk of time where it's maybe a little less trenchy, my biggest dream ever would be to either start or work at a STEM preschool and focus on low-income families. Like if I could just fund it and it's like 50% of spots, 75% of spots are free to low-income families um, to try and bridge that gap we've been talking about. But also um, then I'm like, isn't that also a trench? Cause then I'd be running it. But part of me, I just wanna be working with kids. That's one thing I do miss is I wanna be working with kids again. And it's gonna have to come. I don't know when, but in some way, even if I keep doing what I'm doing now, something small might have to come off my plate so I can do a a little bit of time with, with children. Teaching again. Um, because I feel like I mean I have my own and I get to teach him, but it's it's not the same as helping change lives. Um yeah. Inspire other little little people who didn't know what they were capable of,
1: right? I will I will teach at your STEM preschool. I will do whatever you need me to. I'm there starting it
2: i I have like two other people who are interested elizabeth
1: see i'm telling you all we need to do is we need to start looking for them
2: grants yeah i know there's actually a lot of money available right now but i grant writing so if you're listening to this podcast and you think this is a good idea um and you're a grant writer and you know how to get us some money to start a stem preschool for low-income families and but it's really important to me that i want to have um Families who can pay attend also because I do see the um, problem with monoculture, right? Like, I yeah. think that it is important to let all students work together and um,
1: experience the world together too. So, yeah. Yeah. But we're going to make it happen. I don't know when. I don't have a timeline, yeah. but we will come back to are. this podcast <laughs> and we will tell you that we launched it. Yeah. I guarantee it. I so.
2: Oh, my. Yeah. If any of you listening know of a STEM preschool, put me in contact with them so I can go check them out, see what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know that where I work right now, we do it in the summer, but only Mm -hmm. in the summer. And that's the sucky part. It's not a year round thing.
2: I have thought about like going for school board or something like that someday too. Like that's, I'd say between the early childhood preschool STEM stuff. Like that's one thing. And I, I don't need both, but, or like being on a school board or something, I don't know. School board sounds a little scary these days too, though. So any of you school board members listening, I'm sure you're going to call me and say, don't do it. No, with my background. I, yeah. It's running for offices, something else. <laughs> it's so yeah. nasty sometimes, you know, yeah. like, I just want to be helping my community. Like if someone's better than me, cool, but I just, I just want to help people. And you know, make it better for all our students. I just, I I worked in childcare, like I said, through college and then just briefly until I got my first job out of college. And I just know how hard it is to have a location that's, you know, say the cost of getting it open, the length of time, um, unless you buy something that was previously a childcare facility, there's a lot to happen. I hope, I, I think it'd be great if it could.
0: I mean, just hearing you talk about you know, wanting to, to teach the youngins. I just feel like we are so lucky to, to have people like you out in the world because my God, do I not have the patience for that? And I, I feel like that is, I I just have so much just like admiration and hope. I,
2: the, I mean, it's easy for me to say, and I'm going to say this as a nod to all teachers who are out there in the trenches right now, I am not teaching right now. So it's really easy for me to say, this would be fun, right? And um, I do need to acknowledge that because when you're on the outside, you can say a lot of things look fun. And then when you're in it, you're like, this is not fun anymore, right? So I think that's the thing to remember when talking about any kind of like big dream or whatever too, because it's it's pretty easy to uh, to make it seem like it could be better than it really is. I mean, teaching hands down is the hardest job I've ever done. It's under acknowledged. I do not know a single teacher who was a bad person or wasn't trying their best. I think about the professor I had that was awful. I honestly think that's the best he could do. I don't think he woke, well, okay, maybe like two, maybe 5% of all educators, some of them wake up and they're like, I'm just gonna make someone day day horrible, right? But I really don't believe that's the majority. I think most of them wake up and wanna help kids. and sometimes they're just struggling, especially right now, with their own issues, um, or not even their own issues, just like the environment that they're in. Um, yeah. Same with administrators. They're they're really doing the best they can. Yeah, And, it's and,
1: and plus the shortage, like even Beaverton's giving like a $3,000 signing bonus for you to just be a substitute. Yeah. I mean, I,
2: I was called, I was called by, I'm still called by a number of groups that either subgroups I worked with, or even principals at schools that are like, Hey, I know you're still licensed. Do you want to switch back? And I'm like, no. So I can, I can totally acknowledge that. Yes. I would like to work with young children again. And when I say fund my own or start my own place, it's because I I do want to be able to put up very strict limits as to how many kids we'd work with at a time. And You know, those kind of things that we know are true for effective instruction, and teachers can't do that right now. And then they're also scared of, you know, a deadly virus.
1: Okay, we're going to play a game. I'm nervous about this one. (laughs) You'll do great, everyone does great. Okay. Just it's not a, so it's not a test. We were talking about tests. I don't it's do well. It's not a test. There are no wrong answers. Okay. There might be silly answers, and we might not agree with your answers, but they are not wrong. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Before we close, we wanted to play a game with you called This versus That, a game adapted from the Versus Poetry podcast we're going to ask you to choose either the best or the worst of something. And the only object to this game is to try and answer as fast as you can. So your first choice is, do you want the best or worst category? So whatever I ask you, you're either going to tell me the best of it or the worst of it, but you don't get to flip-flop. You only get one. Okay,
2: good. That's good. Because I feel like my attention span wouldn't flip-flop well. Let's
1: start (laughs) with the worst. The worst. Okay, cool. So what is the worst winter thing to do? I love everything in the winter. Um, mm-hmm.
2: uh, scrape ice off your car.
1: Oh, yeah, that is bad. What was the worst month of 2020? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> what is the worst hot drink?
2: My mind went to like warm alcoholic beverages. I think like, I'm, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I like hot really toddies. Like super-
1: so. Yeah, no. <laughs>
2: And a hot chocolate or something. See, or, not
1: you know. wrong answer, but don't agree with your answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I have to choose something, that's it. Uh,
0: worst TV show on Disney Plus right now. Oh gosh. I don't
1: watch the bad ones. I have an answer for that question. If you oh, don't please. give it okay, okay. It's, it's it's not a show, but they're coming up with the movie Snickerella. Sneakerella. So it's Cinderella, but it's a boy. His name's L. And he designed sneakers and he's trying to get into uh, the king's company.
2: Okay, time out.
1: I think I would like
2: that, though, because I have a son who like really likes the princess stories, but he's like, I'm not one of the princesses, though. And he's not a, like I've when you want to dress up like a princess, you want to do that? And he's like, no, like, why don't they have a prince who gets to do that? So I, might I like think that.
1: no. I think I would like it more if it was animated, but it's live oh, action, and I'm upset oh, about it. <laughs> so
2: that is that is something. I should I should
1: have led with that. That's good. <laughs> yeah,
2: the live action Disney can. It's definitely hit or miss. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I'm a little. I'm a little iffy. Like I'm probably gonna watch it. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, yeah. I probably won't like it. Come back and let us know how
2: good *Sneakerella* is. <laughs> okay.
1: Worst. Holiday.
2: Columbus Day.
1: <laughs> oh that's a good one no one's never said that amen yeah.
2: yeah it seems like it shouldn't be a holiday
1: it's it's not as recognized anymore that's so true. so there's that what's the worst pasta shape
2: oh the bow ties because the very center sometimes really doesn't cook as well as the rest and so the outside gets mushy and the inside is still too firm
1: all right what is the worst vacation spot any
2: vacation is a good vacation
1: I mean If you're not working, I would have went Um, with something like my in-laws, but hey, that's just me.
2: (laughs) No, that's fair, but um, but I love my in-laws. Um, we aren't as lucky. (laughs) I would say, like, I'd say the worst vacation is a family, like a vacation to visit large amounts of family, right? Just because it's not really a break, right? You're just, and and not that I don't love seeing them, but it's not a vacation, right? That's a reunion. Yeah. And no one should call it a vacation because it's just not. The same.
1: Yeah. They always call it a vacation. And, and my annoying part is when they get upset that you don't want to stay at their house. Like, why would I want to sleep in a loft that has no doors and I don't even get a bathroom? Like, yeah. Or you're like, why would I want to stay
2: in a double bed with me and my husband and a four-year-old? Exactly.
1: Not
2: pleasant. They're like the four-year-old can sleep on the ground. I'm like, he won't. <laughs> so, Yeah. Good call. Thanks for the, again, phone a friend. You must be a pro at this game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Worse cookie. Big Newtons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't those, are weird. Those, those are gross.
2: They're like, they're, I shouldn't say they're supposed to be healthy, but they're not. Yeah,
0: they seem like very British in a bad way.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Not the charming kind of way.
1: <laughs> cool. We did it. Woo. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. on our podcast thank you for you know all your wisdom and knowledge yeah. and sharing your bubbly self with us thank, thank you thank so you. much it was fun. Um, so I think that you
0: know more or less wraps up um, our conversation today thank you so much for listening to Whisterhead and make sure to subscribe so you'll know when we drop more episodes and comment so more folks can find us or just tell people about us That's the best way to spread the word and tell us your stories or ask questions you'd like answered on the pod. You can email us at podcast at womeninsciencepdx.org. We would love to hear from you. And of course, special thanks to Homo Kosteriani, who designed our cover art. See y'all later!